The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Hey, you can go ahead and grab a seat right there where you are. Uh, Welcome those who are here in person, those who might be in our overflow area, as well as those who are watching online. Glad that you're with us. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at City Rev and looking forward to continuing our Faith and Logic series with you. Before we get into our time of Bible study, I have a few updates I want to make sure you all know. So go ahead and grab your phone if you have it. Grab your phone. Even if you're watching online, uh, grab your phone. And I want to update you like you heard earlier in our services. Uh, We have new service times that are going to be starting in a couple of weeks. We've been having several people in overflow uh, during most of the services recently. And so we're going to be adding a third service starting on March 28th. So Sunday, March 28th, we're going to have three options online and in person. Those times are 9, 1045, and 1230. So three options for you to be able to connect with us on Sundays. I want you to note that. The other thing I want you to do is go on your phone. If you have the CityRev app, open it. I want to show you a resource that's on there that's going to be helpful. Uh, if you don't have the CityRev app, you can go on your app store, download it. Uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about the Bible, the nature of the Bible, like we do every week, but in particular about how do we deal with the Bible. I know many of us might have some questions or wonder, uh, maybe you've, you've thought, hey, there are some contradictions in the Bible. I'm not sure if I can trust what's in here. We did a message a few years ago where we talked through what is this document that we call the Bible, which is really a collection of documents. And so if you go on your CityRev app and you go right there on the homepage, you scroll down to Faith and Logic previous messages. If you look at Faith and Logic 1, part 1, right there, there's a, an, a really important message that we shared about the Bible. So if you have questions, and today doesn't answer all your questions, I commend that as a resource to you. The other thing that's on there I want to make sure that you're aware about is that we also have on there something we call Word Habit. Uh, if you scroll down just below Faith and Logic, Word Habit is our way of describing how we want to develop a rhythm in our lives of daily engaging with God's Word. So there's some tools there to help you grow in your understanding of the Bible so that you can start reading it. I'm going to reference it later in our message, and I want to let you know now ahead of time where you can find that. Well, with that said, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into Faith and Logic 3, part 3, over in the book of Jude. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Jude, uh, or um, open up your Bible app and make your way over there. That's where we're going to be the very end of your Bible, uh, almost towards the very end. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into our study time. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray right now that you would work in each of our minds and our hearts. God, you commanded us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all of our being. And so may you take these moments now and engage with us, meet us here, Father, I pray for the person listening or watching, person who's here right now, who has a whole lot of questions. Would this be a moment of breakthrough for them today? I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, A few years ago, I was on a study tour in Israel uh, with a group uh, from our church, and it was this really incredible experience. If you ever have the chance to, to go to Israel, highly recommend it to you. And one of the things that was interesting among all the things we saw and places we visited, the places of historical and biblical significance, I remember one of the things that tripped me up, it was especially in a time when I was a little bit pickier than I am now, but 
the food like just completely threw me for a loop. It had Mediterranean and Middle Eastern influence, which I'm not as familiar with when it comes to uh, cuisine. So I remember going uh, to these different restaurants or the hotels would sometimes have restaurants. We'd go to buffets when buffets were a thing, right? So uh, I remember going and there'd be these different dishes named strange things that looked like they had all sorts of ingredients in them that I had no idea what was in it. And I could, I, there was like no one to ask, like, what, what's in this? So I was just so picky, and I probably missed out on the rich cultural experience I could have had. But nonetheless, I looked forward to breakfast time in the mornings, because at breakfast, they had this elaborate display of the most amazing breads. And breads I can work with, okay? I, no matter what, it's, breads are my comfort zone. So I had all these delicious breads. And then I had a thing for the omelet station. Any omelet station people in the room, okay? Omelet station people. Now here's the beauty about the omelet station. You get to go and no matter where you are and how crazy the dishes might seem to your palate, how unknown they might be, at the omelet station, you get to decide exactly what goes in your food. And so I picked some of this, some of that. So I'll take some onions and peppers. It was a kosher omelet station. So they had kosher ingredients there. And so it was great. Loved that omelet station. Now, that image of going somewhere, an omelet station, picking and choosing exactly what you want in your meal, I think that's a helpful image for us when we think about American spirituality. When you think about the landscape of really... The, the, the entire West, the way a lot of our culture views spirituality, it's in many ways uh, like to, likened to a, an omelet station. In that some people might pick and choose from different religious traditions or spiritual traditions and borrow different aspects from different sources to kind of form their own thing. And so uh, as an example, uh, maybe someone might say, hey, listen, Christianity says God is love. That sounds great to me. I'll borrow that from the Bible. I think God is love. Then they might say uh, karma uh, from Hinduism seems to make sense to me. If you do something negative, like that's coming back to you. If you do something positive, that's going to come back to you. That kind of makes sense. So you borrow some from Hinduism. Then you've got like that influencer or influencers you follow on Instagram that's telling you about wellness and wholeness and how you can truly be your authentic self and if you try their products or this thing that they have on their skin that's just so amazing that everybody's asking about okay and you start borrowing from them and start implementing into your life and what you end up doing is you start pulling from these different ingredients into your little spiritual omelet exactly what you want now what makes sense about that and I'm trying to like I'm trying to understand why it's so common what makes sense about that is it helps us get around what we often don't like, which is package deals. If we were to go, for example, if you were to go head first, deep dive into Christianity, you'd be taking on something that's kind of a package deal. There's a whole bunch of ingredients in there, and maybe there's a couple ingredients you're not so sure about, you're not too comfortable with, and so the thought of going head first and embracing something like that, that's why a lot of people would rather say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I like to pick and choose some certain things and adapt them to my life for what works for me. I think a lot of people can relate to this. Maybe you can relate to that sentiment, that approach to spirituality. Now, uh, the question that this begs of us, and the question that I think this leads us into when it comes to a conversation about faith, is that reluctance we have, uh, that sense of uncertainty we have with going full on to embrace a certain faith, 
to take on, for example, the entire Bible and believe the whole Bible is an inspired word from God. I think there's a question that many of us have asked, maybe a friend of yours have asked. And so it sounds like this, I want to pose it to you, is that what should I make of Jesus? What should I make of Christianity if there are parts of the Bible that offend me? What should I make of Jesus if there are parts of the Bible, which is the primary source from which we learn about Jesus, his life, what he was about, what he taught. What should I make of Jesus if there are parts of the Bible that offend me? And historically, traditionally, people take two approaches to answering that question. Some people just outright reject Jesus because of that. They say, hey, there are parts of the Bible I'm not on board with, so I'm just kind of not even interested in Jesus. Won't even consider him. If you're here or listening, chances are you, you may have some experience kind of in that camp. But the fact that you're listening is so commendable. And in so many ways, I admire that because you're in some ways saying, hey, I'm, I'm at least willing to learn what someone else believes, what someone else thinks, which is a great thing. So sometimes people reject Jesus because something in the Bible offends them. The other reason, the other response people take is sometimes they'll just try and revise Jesus. You reinterpret Jesus into a version of Jesus that's more suitable to your particular worldview or your desires or lifestyle. And so traditional passages that are understood with certain clarity, you might come up with new modes and means of interpreting those passages so they, they do not go against what you already are living or the way you view the world. These two attempts to reject Jesus or revise Jesus. And what we see here in Jude, and what we're going to be talking about over the next few moments, is that there's a different approach that you could take when it comes to this question, is what do you do with Jesus if there are parts of the Bible that don't sit well with you? There are parts of the Bible that offend you. What should you do? Jude is going to show us a different approach in a different way. And I want to turn your attention to these verses, verses 3 and 4 of Jude. And uh, let's look at this passage together. It's going to help us um, with this. So uh, here's what it says. Beloved, he's writing to Christians. He calls them beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here in Jude, verses three and four, Jude gives the purpose of his letter. We've spent the last couple of weeks reading through the first two verses. Here we are in verses three and four, and he's giving us a description of why he's writing this letter in the first place. And Jude says, hey, I would have loved to write to you a letter that was encouraging, that you would read and just think, man, this was so amazing, might build you up, bring a smile to your face. But Jude says, I found it necessary. I felt pressed to write to you about something else. I wanted to share with you about our common salvation, but something else hindered me from being able to write that type of letter. And so he writes them a letter of warning. In fact, this whole letter, the entire letter is a letter of caution where he's warning the people, the community of Jesus followers that's receiving this letter because in their church community, in this particular context, there was this rising influence of a type of teaching that was out of step with the way of Jesus. 
And so Jude says, hey, there are some people who have perverted the grace of Jesus and turned it into sensuality. Let me describe to you a little bit about what's happening here that he's trying to address. There's this group of people who are there in that church context. They might be church leaders. They might just be influential Christians in that local church, that community of faith. But there are people who are taking the gospel of Jesus. Now, for all all of our clarity, let me define what the gospel of Jesus is. The gospel is the good news about what God has done for humanity. Namely, that humanity, that our default mode as human beings, as we are born into the world, is that we are spiritually broken. The way that it's described in Ephesians 2 is that spiritually speaking, we're dead. That we're self-centered and disconnected from God's divine life, from eternal life with God. And there is nothing, no good deed, no amount of good deeds that could ever earn God's favor to forgive us of all of our wrongs. So no matter how much you do, how hard you try, how much you seek to obey, you'll never earn God's blessing and grace. But the good news is that God sends forth his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came to live among us. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And in his life, he demonstrated his authority, his teaching, the the miracles he performed. But though Jesus was perfect, he was delivered over to death. And on the cross, Jesus did this incredible exchange where Jesus, though he's righteous, he takes all of our sin, all of our wrongs, everything we've ever done wrong. God takes those sins and he places them upon Jesus. It says that Jesus became sin for us. God put the sin of humanity on his son Jesus and punished sin in his son Jesus on the cross. God made Jesus to become sin for us so that this beautiful exchange can take place whereby we then receive his righteousness. We can be forgiven by being handed as a free gift of his grace the righteousness of Jesus. And so what it means to be a Christian is not that you're more moral than everybody necessarily. It's not that you're a better person than the person next to you. What it means to become a Christian is to receive the grace of God as a free gift through Jesus Christ. That we couldn't earn it. We couldn't have been good enough. God did not say to us, hey, get your act together and then let's have a conversation and maybe I'll think about liking you. That's not the way that it works. It's a free gift of grace that he offers through his son, Jesus. So these false teachers who are gaining prominence among Jude's audience are saying, yeah, Jesus, grace, wonderful. But what these false teachers had done is they turned the grace of Jesus into a license to live as you please. They did what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, refers to as cheap grace. It's viewing the grace of God, the gift of God's eternal life through his son Jesus, that's free to us. It's cheapening it and forgetting that it was extremely costly to God. That God, in order to give us that free gift, he gave everything. Jesus, through his death on the cross, he absorbed the judgment. He took on hell itself so that we might experience eternity with God. And Jesus, this one who gave us this life, such grace, what a gift. To then look at Jesus and say, hey, thank you for your grace. Now I can live for myself without consequences. He calls that, Jude calls that a perversion of the grace of Jesus. 
a complete warping of the grace, the gift of salvation by grace in Jesus. In fact, think about it like this. Grace is not a divine gift of license to live however you please. Grace is a gift of freedom from the enslaving power of sin that we might walk in the newness of life that Jesus offers us. And so when we've received grace, that grace empowers us to live, to honor Christ, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And Jude is writing to an audience that is all of a sudden being captivated by, or maybe they're just apathetic towards a gaining influential teaching in their midst that says, hey, look, you're forgiven. Jesus got you. You've, You've been given his grace. It doesn't matter. You can live like this. And so their lifestyles out of step with the good news about Jesus, Jude is warning them saying, hey, I have, I'm asking you to contend, to strive against those who would teach that and preserve the faith that was passed down to you once and for all. For Jude's original audience, the faith that was passed down to them would have been the teaching that the apostles, the teaching that those who planted that particular faith community would have given to them about Jesus. And that apostolic witness, the apostles who told the message and story of Jesus, how all of Israel's Old Testament hope was fulfilled in Jesus, their Messiah, that witness, that testimony became and formed our New Testament. And so Jude itself, a letter in our Bibles in the New Testament, represents and reflects this faith that was passed down to us once and for all. And so as we wrap our minds around the situation that's happening here in the first century that Jude is addressing, it's a familiar note if you read through the rest of the New Testament because all throughout it we come to moments where the writer of a New Testament letter is having to address an issue in a church congregation because there's false teaching that has gained some prominence. This This is not something unique to Jude. Jude writes here pointing out uh, this first type. Oftentimes, it takes two forms, the false teaching in the New Testament. Number one, the first form it takes is what we see here in Jude. It's It's to revise your faith to conform to the desires of your flesh. The temptation to revise your faith, to reinterpret Jesus, revise Jesus, to fit the desires of your flesh. The flesh in the New Testament understanding in the Christian view is is a way of describing every single one of our self-centered desires. The flesh describes the part of us that, that desires what's best for me, oftentimes at the exclusion of what might be best for the people around me. The flesh is our bent to sin. It's our bent to walk not in the direction of God, but walk away from God. All of these desires that swirl within us, this is what the flesh represents. And here in Jude, in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, in his two letters to them, they address these congregations where there are people advocating that the grace of Jesus is a license to live as you please. And this form, this understanding is a warping, it's a revision Uh, uh, trying to reinterpret the Christian faith. The second way in which this happens in the New New Testament is a, a temptation to revise your faith to fit a prior narrative. So there were these false teachers, for example, in Galatia and Colossae, these two ancient Roman cities that received letters from leaders in the early church, Colossians and Galatians. 
In these two letters, there was a group of people there that had gained some influence in these cities that came in after the apostles, the messengers of Jesus came and proclaimed the gospel and started early church Jesus communities. They, these false teachers, they'd come in and say, yeah, hey, we have allegiance to Jesus too. We're all about Jesus. But if you want true spirituality, if you want true blessing from God, if you really want to be in on God's special family, well, yes, have faith in Jesus, but also you have to ascribe to our particular ethnic identity. You have to adopt our cultural heritage as Jews in this particular case. And Paul writes warning against that. It's a good word for us that just because someone claims some relationship to Jesus or uses the name of Jesus or there's a church that has the word church in it does not necessarily mean that what they're describing is the true Jesus. Here in Jude 3 and 4, Jude is calling them to contend for the faith that was passed down to them. In the midst of a community where there are people around them that are starting to reinterpret Jesus to fit their own desires and their own narrative. Judah saying, this is not the beta version of Christianity that needed updating. This is not something that needs to keep evolving and changing to fit the times. No, the faith was delivered to you once and for all. And so Jude 3 is this call to contend, contend, protect, preserve that faith that was passed down to you. So back to our original question. The original question, what do I do with Jesus? What should I make of Jesus if there are parts of the Bible that offend me? Maybe even that idea right there, it seems antiquated to you. What do I do with the Bible if, if or what, what do I do with Jesus if there are parts of the Bible that just rub me the wrong way? And so here's what I would commend to you from Jude verses three and four. I'd offer you this proposition, is that if there is a perfect God and I'm an imperfect human, that I should expect for God to confront my flesh and offend my narratives. I shouldn't be surprised. I'll say it again. If there is a perfect God, I understand that's a big if for some of us. Maybe you're still wrestling with that question. If there is a perfect God, though, and I'm an imperfect person, that's not controversial. If I'm an imperfect person, then I should expect, I shouldn't be surprised for God to confront my flesh and offend my narratives. It should not be a shock to me. And so this idea of my flesh being confronted is that there's going to come moments when I have desires to do something that if there is a God who has revealed himself and has given to us a word that's inspired from him, I should expect, because I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect, you should expect to come to moments where you're confronted and where you're told your desires are misplaced. They're not for your good or for the good of others. There should be moments where that comes. This happens all the time. So for example, the biblical teaching on money. One of the more famous teachings from the scripture on money is it's warning that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, lusting after, living for money as your God. Like, that's what I'm pursuing. If I just have more of this, then my life will be whole. If I just have more of this, then I'll feel secure. If I just have this, then I'll be respected by the people around me. What we've done in that moment is we've made money a God, and so we must offer sacrifices to our God money. 
The love of money becomes this root of all different types of evils. We might step on people, lie to people's faces, cheat people in pursuit of that which we love. So the Bible's teaching on money, it confronts human desire. It confronts, how about the area of what we do with our bodies, the area of sexuality, the area of gender, It's one of those areas where we have desires. We're human beings who have legitimate feelings and desires. But of course we should expect if there's a perfect God and I'm an imperfect human, for me to have desires that are not for my good and that are not for the good of others. Of course we should not be surprised when the Bible comes out and calls me to step away from something that I feel like is the right thing for me. I shouldn't be surprised. The the second part of this is I shouldn't be surprised when the Bible offends my narratives. By narratives, I'm describing those prior worldviews that we have and that we ascribe to. Those views that we have about what's ultimately good, about ethics and philosophy, economics, politics, all of those areas where we have views or we ascribe to a particular narrative of what the world is ultimately like and how humans can truly flourish. We all have narratives that we ascribe to. But of course, if the Bible is an inspired word from a perfect God to imperfect humans, of course I'm going to come across things in the Bible that are going to offend my narratives. It'd be impossible not to, to, to come across that type of situation. I want you to think about it this way. Uh, imagine with me back to your middle school days, okay? Middle school days, everybody, middle school days. Get yourself in the mind of any middle schoolers in the room. Love you, middle schoolers, okay? 6.30, Wednesday nights, see you across the street, okay? 6.30, middle schoolers. Uh, uh, 7.30, high schoolers, shameless plug there. Uh, but hey, if, I want you to think back to your middle school years, and I want you to remember at the end of the school year, you get your yearbook, it's yearbook day. You start handing out your yearbook to all of your peers because you want them to sign it. And so you hand it to your friend, you trade with them, and they sign it. Maybe you still have your yearbooks and you can actually go back and look. If I remember my middle school yearbook, here are the, uh, the, the summary of all that I remember people wrote in my middle school yearbooks. Uh, it was often hags. Anybody here know what hags means? Few people? Anybody? Have a great summer. Okay? And then put hags signed Susie. Okay? Uh, and then uh, another one was Kit keep in touch this summer, and then they might put their AOL instant messenger ID there, okay, so that we could kit, keep in touch throughout the summer. Uh, then I also remember this. This was a common thread. People would say, you're so awesome. You're amazing. Don't ever change, okay? Stuff like that. All these like empty platitudes, try and puff me up, feel good. And I'd read that as a middle schooler, like, yeah, that's right, you know? Now, just think with me for a moment. Like, let's, let's be honest and real. If you could think of the worst advice to give a middle schooler, don't ever change. Like, just stay. Just don't change. Now, I, I, I know the sentiment they're trying to get at, but honestly, that's terrible advice for any human. Don't ever change. Like, all of a sudden, we've arrived, and 12-year-old version, 12 year old version of Justin is like the perfect, perfect model of Justin. No, we need to change. And so it would be silly for us then to come to a book that claims divine inspiration that claims to be from God, it would be silly for us to go to the Bible and expect it to just glorify how awesome I am. The Bible's so much different than a middle school yearbook. How about this? Uh, Maybe this is a helpful way of thinking of it. Imagine with me you were uh, going on a spiritual pilgrimage. 
and you were trying to discover what is ultimately real and true and what's the true higher power. And so you set out and you're on this like hike through the Himalayas and you got your backpack, you know, and you're like open. You're like, all right, what's real? Okay. Like, and you're just trying to be as open as you possibly can to see if there's a sign or you hear a voice or something happens. You have a psychedelic experience. And so you start walking and you get around this bend and you notice there's this shimmering light and you, it draws your eyes. So you walk over to, and it's a golden book. You see it there and you're like, oh, this must be it. So you pick up the golden book and you lift it up and uh, it says to you, ultimate truth signed from God. Okay. And you find it and you're like, Wow, it's amazing. This is great. Not only that, but God speaks English, and it's in English so I can understand it and read it. So you start opening it, and you read it, and you go line by line, and you just eat this book. I mean, cover to cover. You go on and on. And this incredible, going, you know, you read through it from cover to cover, beginning to end. You close the book, and you're like, wow, that was the most incredible experience. And you know what? God agrees with everything I already believe. That's amazing. My views on ethics and politics and economics, on human flourishing, my, my thoughts on the education system and this and that, God agrees with me. This is incredible. Now, if you were to have that type of scenario, you would come up with two conclusions. Either number one, you have arrived at the point where you are God. Because that divine inspiration, that divine book perfectly articulates who you are and what you already believe and how you view the world. So congrats. Or number two, that some person like you wrote it. But if there was a divine word for humanity, the one thing we could definitely expect, the one thing we could bank on is it's going to get up in our face at times and confront us, and challenge us, and even offend us. And so I'm not here trying to fix all of the things that might offend you about the Bible. We haven't even had those individual conversations yet. I'm just trying to raise your expectation, thinking logically, if there is a divine word from our creator, we should expect and not be surprised as imperfect people when it gets up in our face and offends our view of the world. Again, the Bible, it's not a middle school yearbook that's about how awesome and amazing I am. It's not a golden book in the Himalayas that perfectly agrees with me. It's going to challenge and confront me. Now, there are some of us that the things that we've been offended by in the Bible, there are some of us that the things you've been offended by are actually not even in there. That maybe someone who claimed some relationship to Jesus or they worked at a place that has the word church in it, interpreted something from the Bible, and so you get outraged and offended by something that's actually not even in there. That someone just revised Jesus to fit their own particular agenda. So it's so important for us to actually read it ourselves. For you to do the homework on your own, I commend that to you. Read the book. You read it, dissect it, read it in the context of community. Ask questions but if there is a perfect God and I'm an imperfect human, I should expect there's going to be moments when God's going to confront me and maybe even offend me. So if you're listening and you've been rejecting Christianity, whether this is your first time in church ever, first time watching a Christian message in a long time, or whatever your story is, but if you've been just kind of on the outside looking in, you may have real legitimate things that you don't, you don't gel with in the Bible. 
The thing that I would offer to you is to get offended at the central claim of the Bible. If you're going to be offended, first be offended at the claim of the gospel. That God sent his son Jesus Christ in the flesh. God in the flesh come to humanity because humanity without God's intervention, without his grace, humanity is hopelessly lost and separated from God. Cut off from God. But God has made a way through his son Jesus by faith in him, by turning to him. That central claim that's based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the starting point. So if you're asking questions and there are parts of the Bible that are difficult for you, what I'd first point you to is we talked about this in message one in this series. Right there on our City Rev app, you can go back, listen to previous messages if you weren't here. We talked about the resurrection of Jesus because here's the reality. If Jesus rose from the dead, if that happened, if he was dead on Friday and on Sunday he was alive, well, then that means that he's God and I'm not. And that means that if there's something we disagree on because it doesn't fit my lifestyle or my narrative, that it's not him that's wrong if he's the risen Lord. I'm the one who's wrong in that case. And at the same time, the reverse is also true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if all of that's a hoax, it's made up, myth, then all the teachings of Jesus, the entire faith breaks down on that one claim. And so what I would invite you into is to just search out, seek out the answer to the question, who is Jesus? What is Jesus all about? Did he rise from the dead? Is he the son of God and the savior of the world? Because if he is, then of course there's gonna come moments when I'm confronted in my flesh. Of course there's gonna come moments where my views are challenged. And so what it would look like for you to become a Christian, for you to become a believer in Jesus, is faith and repentance. It's believing and receiving the free gift of God's grace through his son, Jesus. It's not cheap grace. It's not grace that then permits you to live as you please. It's costly grace. It's a relationship with your creator. It's saying to Jesus, I believe you died for me on the cross, that you took my sin on yourself and that you rose from the grave and that I can be set free from my sin. I can be forgiven by God. I can have eternal life with you. I believe. And it's repentance. Repentance is just describing the way in which we turn from living our lives our own way according to our own patterns and we turn to Jesus. We agree with God about sin. We turn to him and we trust in him. In a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to say to God, I trust you more than I trust myself. I trust you more than I trust my desires and my feelings. I trust you more than I trust the narratives I've been ascribing to. And so my Christian brothers and sisters, I don't want you to misunderstand me. For those of us who do follow Jesus, make no mistake about it, it is so tempting and easy for us to revise Jesus as well. This is something that if we aren't careful, we can quickly draw into this there is this wave of temptation right now in our day from the cultural political left and right to take Jesus and make him a servant of our narrative. To take Jesus 
and make him the one who revolves around our ideology and turn Jesus into a prop that we can just bring out some things he said that somehow match our narrative when it's convenient, but ignore the other things he might say that might contradict our precious narrative. Christians, it's so easy for us to get sucked in and drawn in by the competing viewpoints of our world, feel like we're getting pinned down and cornered on either side when Jesus is calling us. He's calling us not to take our faith and make it orbit around whatever narrative we're ascribing to, where the narrative sets the tone. If it's on the left, it's on the left. If it's on the right, it's on the right. And we just orbit and parrot whatever that is using some Bible verses and claiming some allegiance to Jesus to justify it. But Jesus is the one who's at the center. He sets the orbit pattern. So that our narratives, our viewpoints, they are the ones that come in alignment to Jesus. Think about it. Ten years ago, you probably had views that right now you think are silly. You probably had views ten years ago on something where you thought, wow, I can't believe I thought that back then. Ten years from today, you will look back on something you think right now and think to yourself, wow, I can't believe I ever believed that. Can't believe I ever thought that that's the way things actually were. And yet, if that's true, we know that's true about ourselves, then we should expect God's unchanging word that stays the same, the faith passed down once and for all to serve as this anchor that's steady and immovable and as the waves and currents of culture collide and try and toss us to and fro, it steadies us because our faith is what's at the center that Everything else revolves around it. And so who wins that wrestling match when you come across a moment in scripture, when you come across one of those moments, when the teaching from the Bible seems to be at odds with how you're living, when the teaching from the scripture from Jesus seems to be at odds with the narrative you've ascribed to, who wins that wrestling match? The call for believers in Jesus is to trust in him. Uh, just a few uh, days ago, I was having a particularly difficult couple of days. Um, just day after day after day, it was, it was challenging, and I was doing a lot of complaining. And I was complaining, complaining about stupid things, little things. And uh, there was one time where I complained, and uh, I was in the kitchen. My wife comes to me, and she puts her hand on my shoulders and says, I need you to stop complaining. <laughs> and I said, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry right. And then I kind of moved on with my morning. I got the kids ready, dropped them off. My wife went to work. I went to work. And I picked up the kids, went back, and I actually arrived before my wife got back uh, to work. So I got there with the kids, and I noticed all around our house there are these yellow sticky notes everywhere, uh, all over the house. And like on the kitchen cabinet, on the refrigerator, on, uh, on the pantry door, on my bathroom mirror, all over the house, these yellow sticky notes. And on these sticky notes were different scriptures that talked about thanksgiving and gratitude. And so, if I'm honest with you, I was offended. <laughs> but then I was really grateful. Like, that stung because that was getting up in my face about something. But I was grateful for, number one, a wife who's so, such an anchor, who's an amazing support, and who point my eyes to Jesus when I'm taking my eyes off of him. But number two... Grateful because what those verses say are true. 
And then when I've, I've been grumbling and complaining about silly things, dumb things, that what God has for me is so much more, if I could just get my eyes off of those things and onto him, expressing gratitude for all that he's done. Listen, there should be times in our lives where we come face to face with scripture, maybe on a yellow sticky note right there in front of you. There should be times when God's word gets in your face and offends you. Where it gets in your face and confronts your flesh. But that's something to be grateful for. It's God showing us the path to true life. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The call upon Christians, the call upon Jesus' followers is to come to God, to come to the faith that was passed down once and for all to us and say, God, I receive this. Correct me where I'm wrong. Help me to see where I can't see. I know I'm not perfect. Your word is unchanging. Our world is ever changing, but I'm trusting in you. The call on a Jesus followers is to take the faith passed down once and for all and by it see the world around us. See it with the eyes of Jesus. See it through the lens of our Savior. In John chapter 6, Jesus gives a hard teaching to a large crowd of people who were there gathered to him. At this particular moment in John chapter 6, Jesus had gained this large following. People were hearing about his miracles, his teaching, and so it's incredible. A movement is starting, and as Jesus is teaching them about what God is like, what he's about, what it means to be human, the crowd gets offended. And as he's done finishing up his teaching, one by one, people start leaving, and John, the author, cues us in and tells us that there were many people that day that stopped following Jesus because of what he had to say. So Jesus, seeing all the crowd dismiss, he turns to his 12 disciples, the 12 he's been investing in and pouring himself into, and he looks at them and he asks them a question. He says, hey, all these are leaving. What about you? Are you guys gonna leave? And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, where else would we go? You hold the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere. God is looking for a people He's searching his eyes to and fro for a people who in a world that's constantly changing, that views and narratives gaining prominence, God is looking for a people that when the teaching is hard, will say to Jesus, where else would we go? We see where those other views lead. We see where those narratives are going. Where else would we go? You hold the words of eternal life. You are what's ultimately true and right and good. God is looking for a people who in the midst of the storms and waves of our culture will have their feet firmly planted in the faithful truth of God's good word for us. That we might be a people who say with Peter, we're not going anywhere. The temptation to revise and reinterpret Jesus into a more palatable, not so rough around the edges version of Jesus is real. That temptation is pressing and God invites us to contend, to believe 
the faith passed down once and for all that of course, because he's perfect and I'm not, there's gonna be moments, a lot of moments when he's gonna confront my flesh and offend my narratives. And God invites you, he invites all of us to put our trust in him. Christian brothers and sisters, maybe it's been a while since you've really engaged in God's word. Maybe January, you had the start of the year. You're like, 2021, I'm gonna read the Bible. It's gonna be great. We even talked about it as a church. Maybe you kind of fallen by the wayside on that. Let me invite you to come back in. Join us as we engage the Bible daily through Word Habit. There's resources there on our app to help you along in that journey. But be formed by this word. Let it be the center around which we orbit. May it shape us, confront us, convict us that we might experience life. And then for those here who are not believers in Jesus, but maybe right now is your moment, whether you're here in this room, in our overflow, watching online, maybe right now is your moment where you're ready to believe, where you're ready to receive what Jesus has done for you. He loves you. He gave his life for you and he invites you to follow him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Take a quiet moment, a quiet posture of prayer there. If that's you, if you're ready today to say, Jesus, I, I believe for the first time, then right there where you are, would you just make these words your words to God? Would you just say, God, today I believe. God, today I put my trust in you. I believe, Jesus, you died for me on the cross. I believe you forgave me of my sin. And I believe you rose from the dead. I turn from living according to my ways. And I turn to your ways, Jesus. Father in heaven, for all of us, it's my prayer that we wouldn't be shocked that we wouldn't be surprised when we get to those moments where you're confronting us, where you're calling us to grow. God, thank you that you gave us a divine word that doesn't just describe how we never need to change, how we're fine just the way we are. But Lord, you have so much more for us. You invite us to come as we are. We can't earn or work for your grace and yet you call us deeper into your love and grace that our whole lives might be in submission and obedience to you. May we live that kind of life based on your costly grace that Jesus, you won for us on the cross. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you made the decision today to put your faith in Jesus, I just wanna say that's the greatest decision you could ever make in your entire life. I wanna invite all of us right here online, watching in our overflow, grab your phone out here for a moment. I wanna invite you to go on your phone and go to cityrev.org faith. Cityrev.org faith. That link there is for you if you just put your faith in Jesus. If right now was your moment where you believed for the first time, I wanna invite you to go to that page, take you a few seconds just to fill it out. We wanna send you a Bible. We talked a whole lot about being formed by the Bible. So I wanna send you a Bible so you can begin this journey of following Jesus being grounded in his word. So we want to celebrate that with you. And uh, so go ahead and fill that out, cityred.org slash faith there. Well, hey, we're going to close our time together in song. So I want to invite all of us to go ahead and stand. Let's sing in response to God's good word.
Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.